All right. Well, good morning, everyone. As uh, has already been said, welcome to Riverwood. If you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, a lead pastor for Riverwood. And uh, today, as uh, Jake just said, we get to go back to the book of Mark. Uh, what I want to do to start is I want to invite you to think of someone whom you have great respect for. All right, could be someone you know, uh, could be a, a grandparent, maybe it was a teacher who was really influential. Uh, it might be someone like a, a book author or maybe someone from history. Someone that, that what you know about them, what you know of them, you just have immense respect for. All right, so you got that person in your head. Now what I want you to do is I want you to turn to someone near you and I want you to tell them who you respect. But I also want you to tell them why? And if you're joining us online, I want you to put in the chat who you respect and also include why. All right, so take a minute or two, turn to someone near you, share who you respect and why you respect them. All right, a lot of families are sitting together. So kids, I hope you were wise enough to brown nose your mom and dad and say you. Uh, that would have been a, a smart thing to do. Uh, hopefully, whoever you heard, it was a very impressive person. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see why you would really uh, like and respect them. Um, what I want you to do, know that is I want you to keep in your head that person that you respect as you think about them, though, I want to throw one thing into this. We're going to have an imaginary scenario where this person that you have so much respect for gets caught red-handed in some horrendous, egregious sin. Right? Maybe it turns out that they had an affair. Maybe it turns out that they actually had multiple affairs. Maybe they committed just some horrible financial indiscretions. Or maybe they covered up some horrific abuse. Or maybe they were actually the perpetrators of that abuse. Now, how do you feel about your person? I mean, yeah, it's, it's imaginary. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, that, that would never happen. But what I just spelled out as an imaginary scenario, for many people, is not imaginary. They have had people in their lives for whom they have had tremendous respect... And yet this person has done something horrific. And it feels almost like a personal betrayal. And yet it seems that every month news like this comes out. Just this week, a mega church down in Florida had a pastor who was, and not just a pastor, the head pastor, got arrested in a police sting. It turns out that he thought he was talking to an underage female online and was going to meet up with her one Friday night. Instead, he was talking to an undercover cop and found himself arrested. That police sting caught 16 men, including this pastor. But to make things even more awkward, they released him. 
set a date for him to have to come in. And he was back on stage on Sunday, acting as if nothing had occurred. Church didn't find out until Monday. A lot of people really respected this guy. I mean, for him to be the pastor of a mega church to, in America, to be a mega church, you have to have at least 2,000 people in your church. I have no idea how large this guy's church was, but there's got to be at least 2,000 people who think this guy's great, who really respect him. And, and look what he's done. Uh, in the podcasting world, in the Christianity and religion uh, category, the number one podcast for, for several weeks now or, or even months has been a, a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's primarily been about Mark Driscoll, the lead pastor, founding pastor for Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, and how he began to grow in fame, accumulated a lot of attention. Some people did not like him, but a lot of people did. Some had immense respect for this man. He influenced tons of people to follow Jesus, impacted them. And yet what came out and what the podcast is revealing is that behind the scenes, Mark was very verbally abusive. Number of people felt deeply hurt by him. It's almost like there's a trail of bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. People thought he was great. They had so much respect for him. And yet it just came tumbling down. And now Mars Hill Church no longer exists. The 14 campuses or so that they had are now all autonomous churches. So one good thing that came out of it, several churches... But there was a lot of pain in the process. And both of those examples are out of Christendom. Like if we wanted, we could take time to jump into Hollywood and look at the Me Too movement. Or we could go over to sports and see how on a regular basis athletes do things, say things that suddenly cause all these people who have immense respect for them to just withdraw it. I I, I mean, it's probably happened in your family or even in your place of work. This is a regular occurring thing. The reason I bring it up is that because today we're going to hear Jesus talk about some of the most respected men of his day. Except he's going to pull the curtain back and reveal their frauds. They are not who we think them to be. But thankfully, he's not going to just expose some people today. He's also going to show us someone that we should become more like He's going to sort of pit these two against one another. And I hope it's going to leave us questioning, all right, so who do we give our respect to and why? But also, what kind of lives are we going to live? And what kind of of respect should we get for the way we live? So as we get ready to turn to the scriptures, let me pray. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. The, The words we are about to read and study today have existed long before any of us breathed our first breath, and they will be here long after we have breathed our last. So, Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts and our minds to understand what you have said and what you call us to, that we wouldn't try to take any of of what we hear and twist it through our own cultural biases, but instead we would allow you to remove whatever you need to remove so that we can put our attention solely on you So that we can see how you call us to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. So God, I pray that you'd help us to to take the things that we've experienced this week, the, the, the pains and the triumphs, and that right now we just place them before you, give them over to you so that we let go of them and our hands are open and ready to receive so that we can hear what you need to and want to say to us to make us into the people you call us to be. 
So, Father, I pray that you'd help me to teach. But far more importantly, would you speak, not just through me, but through your word, through your spirit, into our minds and hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 12. If you are a first-time guest, uh, we open up the scriptures every single week. uh, So we really want you to have a Bible because we want you to be able to read and study right along with us. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen, so don't don't feel pressure to suddenly get something. But if you already have a Bible on your phone, by all means, download a Bible to it. uh, And that way, wherever you go with your phone, you've always got a Bible available. Uh, If you're like me and too addicted to your phone and you need to like put that thing away occasionally and you want to get a paper copy of the Bible... Stop by our resource table. We've got some paper copies there. Or if you're online and you want a copy, just go to Walmart and buy one. Or just give us your address and we will just mail you one or drop one off at your house. Um, We've been in the book of Mark for roughly a year and a half. Uh, I kind of didn't believe it when I looked it up. But yeah, we started it back in March uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, and, And if you're a first time guest, you're thinking like, oh my goodness, like, do they like do like one word at a time? Uh, we, we, we take, we've been taking breaks. Uh, you know, last Christmas was a break. We did 21 days of prayer just recently here in August. We did a defining church series. Uh, then we did a generosity series. Uh, but now we find ourselves for a couple weeks here coming back to the book of Mark. When we left Mark, we were up to chapter 12. What had been happening in chapter 12 was Jesus was having several different conversations. Different Jewish leaders were approaching him, but they were not approaching him to learn from him. They were approaching him to ask a question to try to trap him. What they were hoping was that Jesus would not be able to answer the question, look foolish, and then all of the Jewish people would say, oh, maybe this Jesus guy isn't so special, and then things could go back to normal and the Jewish leaders could maintain their power. But each time they asked him a different question, he answered it beautifully, perfectly, and he just continued to look better and better. Eventually, they realized we're not going to be able to trick this guy, and so they got quiet. But then Jesus asked his own question. And so the last time we were in Mark, Jesus asked them a question. But when he asked the question, it was clear he knew the answer. But as they're listening, they realize they have no idea. They don't know how to answer it in response. It it was kind of a conversation stop. It was a mic drop moment. Well, where we coming back to, Jesus suddenly picks up the mic and he begins to talk about the very people who were just trying to trap him. So join me at verse 38 of Mark 12. And in his teaching, he, Jesus, said, Beware of the scribes. Who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The English Standard Version, which I'm using today, uses the word scribe. But maybe you have a translation that uses the word expert. Uh, it might use scholar. It, it's the same deal, though. These were guys who spent their whole entire day reading, copying, studying the scriptures. And therefore had become some of the experts in it. So when you needed theological advice, these were the guys you turned to. And when you have a faith-based culture... That means these guys kind of rise to the top as some of the greatest, most respected men of their day. We don't have a good equivalent in our day and age. Like within Christianity, the the equivalent would be like maybe pastors or or seminary professors. I I think within Christendom, 
pastors and seminary professors have respect, but out in our general population, no, not, not so much. I mean, there, there used to be a day and an age where pastors were very respected. I, I think it used to be like, you know, president of the United States, doctors, and pastors. But pastors have slid down the list, and I think they're like slightly above snake oil salesmen or something. Like, like, they're just not in the general population the same level of respect that there used to be. So I don't think we fully understand just how respected these scribes were. Maybe what you should do is imagine the person that you thought of in the beginning of the sermon, this person that you really respect, and imagine the amount of respect you have for that person. Imagine an entire city having that same level of respect. Like everyone, not not a single person thinks differently. That's a lot of respect. Now double it. I think that begins to get us to the place where we begin to see just what level these scribes, these scholars held within the culture. Which is why when Jesus starts talking about them with the word beware, it would be really disconcerting. It'd be a, a, punch, to, a, a, a punch to the gut. Like, it, it would just make them go, wait, wait, what? Like, beware of the greatest, most respected men of our day? What, Jesus, are you crazy? But then Jesus begins to explain why you need to beware of them. I want you to realize, though, that as Jesus is condemning them, he's not mad at them for wearing long robes. It's not a sin to get greeted in the market. It's not even wrong to say long prayers. What Jesus is so against is the fact that they not only liked the attention they got from their robes, the attention they got when they walked through the marketplace, the attention they got when they sat in the best seats at the synagogue, No, what Jesus didn't like is that they sought after it and even began to expect it and demand it. Many years ago, a a friend of mine who was a pastor on staff at a church was headed to a meeting. Uh, It was a meeting of other pastors and Christian leaders. It was a monthly meeting and he he lived in a city, so it was a a fairly well-attended meeting. And different churches would host this luncheon. Well, my friend said he was late. He was I'd forget, probably running like 10 minutes late. So he's driving up and he says that he gets there and the parking lot is packed. He's driving through looking for a spot and he cannot find one. So he's thinking, I'm going to have to go park on the street. When all of a sudden he said that he saw a spot right near the front door. And his first thought is, yes! Like he's thinking, oh, you know, someone like left after the the meeting got going. Man, like, thank you God for the close parking place. But then all of a sudden he thought, oh, it's probably handicapped. So he's just going to head on. But as he's coming up, it It's not a handicapped spot, but there was a sign. The sign said, reserved for pastor. It it wasn't exactly like the sign. I just thought this one was funny. Uh, But he sees the sign and his thought, he said he has two thoughts. The first one is, well, the meeting's already going. Like the pastor is surely here. And so maybe the pastor's done what my friend said he did. My, my friend attended, was, was on staff at a very large church. And so they would park in the back corner of their lot to let their church family and first-time guests have the closer spots. So he's thinking, oh, that's probably what this pastor did. Knowing that, the, you know, we'd have this big meeting. He probably parked in the, the back so that someone else could park, you know, in this spot up close. But then he says he has a funny thought. It just says reserved for pastor. doesn't say which pastor. I'm a pastor. 
it's reserved for me. So he pulls into the spot, chuckling to himself, gets out of the car. And as he's walking around the edge of the core, he suddenly hears a honk. This horn is blaring. And he turns around, and here is a brand new Cadillac Escalade, I think he said. And the window is rolling down, and inside is a guy, and the guy yells, Who do you think you are? Get out of my spot now! And my friend said he had two thoughts in that moment. First of all, how in the world does this guy afford a car that's worth more than my annual salary? But second, I didn't know a pastor could have such rudeness an entitlement in his voice. That pastor was acting like the scribes of Jesus' day. It didn't become, how can I serve the people? It was, I deserve these things. I deserve the best spot, whether the best parking spot or the best seat at the synagogue. I deserve these things because of my title, because of my position, because of my education, I deserve this. So you get out of my spot. That is why Jesus says that these guys would receive the greater condemnation. You see, the scribes knew the scriptures in and out. You needed someone to speak in theologically on something. They could do it. Yet with this intimate knowledge of the scriptures, it had not changed their hearts. All they had done was twist it. And rather than help the people connect to God, they were using it to help people give them the accolades. It had become all about me. So that meant that the greatest days of their eternal lives right there on earth in that time. Because God's judgment was going to come against them. Because this is not what God created us for. He did not come create us to just come and try to take And yet that's what the scribes were doing. The very men that he said, I want to use you to help people understand my law, to understand my heart, to understand the coming of the Messiah. And instead, they ignored all of it. And how can we twist this to just get it for me? We see this especially in the phrase where it says that these men devour widows' homes. Really, that's just a fancy way of saying that they took advantage of the widows. If you go and you study the Judaic law, What you see is that they should be caring for the widows, right? Widows were incredibly vulnerable people, right? It was such a man-based society that if the man dies, she has no income. So God had made the the, uh, uh, Mosaic law such that they should protect the widows, to care for them, for love them. But these scribes were taking God's word, which told them to care for them, and they were twisting it to get the women to care for them. They were using their money, their food, their way. Because the scribes had all the influential power. And so they used that power to exert it over someone who had no power so they could just simply get. And so Jesus pulls the curtain back. Guys, this is not who you want to be like. Beware of them. Do not give them your respect. Because these are not men who are reflecting the heart of God. But our text does not stop there. It goes into another story. So if you still have your Bible open, look there now down at verse 41. Mark 12, verse 41. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Every November, uh, I try to take uh, a couple of days uh, to get away, uh, some just for personal refreshment, but also then to work on my next year of, of preaching. I try to put the whole entire year together, my preaching calendar. Well, as I was working through Mark, um, I, I didn't come up with all my sermon titles. I usually just put something in there to you know, get things going. But usually the week of my preparation, I come up with a different title. And then for those of you who actually care, that's the sermon title for the week. So I hadn't gotten to it like this week. So all I had thrown in way back in November was scribes versus widows. Well, Jake thought that was hilarious. All of a sudden in our meeting, Jake busts out boxer announcing mode and starts going, welcome to the main event in this corner, dressed in the long robes, the scribes. Like he just went on. It was hilarious. I totally should have had him come up here and reenact it for you because he, he had me rolling. I'm nowhere near as funny as him. Uh, but in a sense, this is what Mark is doing in his text. He shifts immediately from a story all about scribes and then goes to widows. Now, I do not believe that these two stories happened like chronologically one right after the other. I, I think they happened at separate times. If you've been with us as we've been studying Mark, you might remember that this is actually the Apostle Peter sharing this with Mark. A tradition holds that Peter was in prison awaiting to go and be crucified. He did not want to be crucified exactly like Jesus. So when they finally crucified him, he insisted they do it upside down. And so he's in prison any moment, the soldiers are going to come and take him away. So he's recounting his version of the story of Jesus to Mark. And Mark is, is writing this down as fast as he can. And so Peter's just gotten done telling Mark, oh yeah, there were all these conversations with these different Jewish leaders. They tried to discredit Jesus, but they totally failed. And then that led to Jesus asking a question that no one could answer, but they all knew he had the answer. And then, oh man, Mark, I'm telling you, he launched in on scribes. And so Mark's writing this all down. And as Peter's telling Mark, I, I, I kind of assume that he says, oh, yeah, he says that they devour widows' homes. Oh, that reminds me of the story. There was this time, Mark, where we were at the temple, and Jesus sat down, and he's watching the people. And he goes into the story that we just read. And at the temple in Jerusalem, there was not a place called the treasury. Uh, there, there was a place outside of what was known as the court of women, where there were these offering boxes. Some study this week, I learned that there were 13 of these collection boxes. One source said that they were shaped like trumpets. And so you would come in and you would drop your free will offering. Because you see, there are other parts of the temple where you would bring you know, an animal for a burnt offering. There was other places to bring you know, a grain for a grain offering. But then you would bring these free will offerings. And this was the, the offering that would be used to help maintain the, the functions of the temple, but also be given to the poor. So you would bring this in. Now, in our day and age, people don't know what we give. Right? We give online. Right? It, it, it's nice. It's convenient. You know, we don't want to make a big to-do about it. So we just give online. And, and no one sees it. If someone wants to you know, use our, our giving box, they might drop in a check. But the check is the same at physical dimensions, whether you put $5 on there or $5 million on there. Like, no one can tell what you're giving. Now... 
maybe you start making some judgments based on what someone's wearing, the kind of car that they drive, maybe the size of the house they live in. You might start to extrapolate, well, man, maybe they're giving like this amount. But honestly, we don't know. Like there's times where someone may look really rich and we're thinking, man, they must be really generous. And all, all they give is like 20 bucks. And yet there's other times where someone you're like, yeah, they just seem to be doing okay. And yet it turns out they are incredibly generous. We don't know. But in Jesus's day, the money was so tangible, they knew. They could tell. And the thing is, the way this is written, Jesus is making it clear. These rich people wanted people to know. They're hauling it in, plunking all of this in these trumpet receptacles. And people are going, wow, look how much they're giving. And yet Jesus knows that while it looks like they're giving this amount, compared to what they really have, it's this amount. All they're doing is they're acting like the scribes. They're just simply wanting to people to look at them and go, wow, look how generous they are. They must be so holy. They must be so spiritual. But then suddenly, a widow walks up to one of the receptacles. Maybe she says a little prayer. She walks over to it, and she just kind of dumps her hand. And if you're listening carefully, you hear plink, plink. Suddenly you realize just two little coins have been dropped in. The, the Greek uses the word lepta for these coins. Uh, a leptin was the smallest denomination possible. When you, you could have one leptin or two lepta. Two lepta, just like two nickels equals a dime, two lepta equal to, and I've got to make sure I get the word right, quadrantes. A quadrantes, or in Latin, it was a quadrant. Some of you have heard that word. A quadrantes was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now, some of you know that a denarius was the value of one day's wages. It was a coin that after working eight honest hours, you got a denarius. And then that was enough to help you buy, you know, the food that you would need for your day. So a, a quadrantes, two lepta, was one sixty-fourth. Right? If you take eight hours in your working day, 164th of that is like seven minutes. Like, like it's nothing. This, that's why the ESV puts in there that her two coins equaled a penny. Like that's the smallest we can get in our denomination. She, she's giving the equivalent of nothing. I remember after Leanne and I graduated from college, we uh, felt God calling us to the mission field. I've shared several times stories about us going to Venezuela to work at a Christian mi uh, missionary school. Uh, so we uh, are trying to fundraise and we're talking to a lot of, you know, individuals, but also we would go to churches. And uh, so we were trying to connect with a few churches back in my hometown of Shenandoah, Iowa. Uh, my parents had helped start a church. And then after several years, some stuff happened. They ended up leaving with all the original founders and they started another church. Things had changed, though, at that first church, and there was now good friendships and relationships again. And so my parents said, hey, you should really contact them. So we contacted them. They said, you know, we're not going to take you on as a church, but there might be some individuals who want to support you. So, yes, you can come in, share a little bit. So I think we were given like 10 minutes during the service, and then, you know, people could do what they wanted after. So afterwards, people could come up and sign up either to receive our – and this is – how long ago this was we didn't have a prayer email because we didn't even have email yet uh it was prayer letters and so we you know you could sign up to receive our prayer letters uh or you could sign up to begin to help us financially well we needed to know how much people were giving because we had to track it so that we knew when we got to 100 percent, and then we could then get onto the mission field 
So we start looking through the amounts. And I, again, I think we only had like two or three people sign up to support us financially. But one of the amounts was $1. Now, it was kind of scribbled. So I started thinking it was a kid. Oh, how cool would that be? A kid saying, hey, I want to support you $1 per month. But I looked over and I didn't see a kid's name. I saw Jimmy's name. What you need to know is that Jimmy was the local poor man of my community. Like, this is embarrassing to admit, but when I was a kid, people would tell Polak jokes. Well, we told Jimmy jokes. Jimmy was just the the poor man, the brunt of, of the community. He was so poor, he couldn't afford a car. So he drove a moped. Like, in my hometown, it's kind of like today. Only 14-year-olds drive mopeds. Well, in my hometown, it was 14-year-olds and Jimmy. And yet, Jimmy had joined this church, heard us share, and had decided he wanted to support us. And all he could afford was $1 a month. But I'm going to be honest. That $1 meant more to me than some of the 20s, 50s, and 100s that we got. Because I knew how poor Jimmy was. And the fact that he would want every month to give $1 of it to help us to go and make a difference in the lives of missionary kids so that they could find Jesus and follow him. The Jimmy of Jesus' day was this widow. Her two coins probably could barely even buy her a loaf of, like half a loaf of bread. This is all she had. And yet she chooses in her worship to give it. But then did you notice Jesus' reaction? He like, well, well, guys, come here, come here. He calls his disciples to him and goes, look, this widow right here. She just gave more than all of these rich people. I'm sure the disciples are going, uh, wait, wait a second. I was watching and that dude plunked in like, you know, $100,000. You know, she just gave, you know, not even a penny. What do you mean, Jesus? Because out of their riches, they gave. But out of her poverty, she gave everything. And if you think about it, the reason this resonated so much with Jesus is because in just a few weeks, he's going to do the exact same thing. He's going to give everything. He's going to give his life. And so if this was a spiritual boxing match, Jesus is standing there like the referee. And he's saying, yeah, in this corner are some guys who are not doing what God called them to do. But in this corner is someone who just threw the spiritual knockout punch, doing exactly what resonates with the heart of God. Because God has given everything for us. And this widow, who's overlooked, who's ignored, gets no respect, has no influence, ends up being the person we should probably give the most respect to. And so referee Jesus, in this moment, declares a winner. And it kind of leaves us to then say, all right, so who am I? So I think this leaves us with two questions. The first question I think we should be asking ourselves as we look at these two sections is to whom do I give respect? To whom do I give respect? It's very clear in this that Jesus is saying that we should not be giving our respect to the scribes of our day and age because really they're just takers. And instead, we should be giving our respect to the widows, the ones who give to others. I, I, let me just put a, a couple of disclaimers on this. Uh, first of all, 
I don't think this means we should find the scribes of our culture and throw them through the cancel culture shredder. All right? Like, they are people. They're humans. In just a few weeks after this, Jesus is going to go die on the cross for their sins. All right? So he loves them. He's got very, very harsh words for them. But the reason his words are so harsh is because he knows you're not living the way I've called you to live. He's calling them to something better. His image is in them. He wants to see that restored. Right? So he doesn't hate them. So therefore, I don't think we should hate them as well. Also, even though he talks collectively about scribes, I don't think every single one of them was the the biggest jerk in the world. There, There probably were a handful who were genuine. They loved God deeply. They loved studying the scriptures and they really sought to serve the community. It's just that because there were enough of them, it had sustained the batch and Jesus talked about them in a collective manner. But I think that there are some scribes in our day and age who really, if we get to know them, we discover. Sometimes I think we could also identify some people in our culture that we'd say that's a widow because of their, their poverty. It does not mean they are an automatic saint. We have no idea the life story of this widow. All we get is this one little glimpse into her life. We see her give and Jesus praises her for it. And in, in this sense, by God then putting this through Mark's pen for us to read, it's that call for us to live that way as well. But it doesn't mean that every widow out there is therefore a saint. But with all those disclaimers aside, I think we sometimes just go with the general culture and we give respect to some people who may not deserve it. I mean, we're putting their, their, their posters on our walls when we're teenagers. We're gushing about them on social media. We're, we're buying anything with their name, image, and likeness on it. Like we, we, we make it about them. Let me give you an example. In the world of sports, wins matter. And so the coaches that have the most wins get the most respect. But what if a coach is just merely using his team to build his legacy and career? Let's let's even just put professional sports aside. Let's just talk college sports. My opinion is that college sports is to help these men and women to become, to persevere and work through things so that they can become great citizens for our world. It isn't just about the win. Yes, go for the win, compete for it, but that's not the ultimate goal. But if all we do is give the respect to the coach that manages to win but seems to ignore his player, he's just using them, I don't know that that's who we should be giving our respect to. Maybe our respect should actually be going to the the coach who's investing in the young men and women on the team and maybe doesn't get as many wins, but is making a difference in their lives. So who are you giving respect to? Are you giving respect simply because they have the wins? Giving respect because they have the title? They have the car? They seem to have the bank account? Because they vote the same way as you? Or are you giving respect because you see someone who's giving their life for someone or something? That leads to our second question. The second question is who is going to win your internal battle? You see, if we're making this pretend boxing match between scribes and widows, I think that inside each of us is a little bit of a scribe and a little bit of a widow. And there's a boxing match happening inside of us. The the scribe part of us is the one that wants. That wants some attention, that wants the new things, that, that, that wants these things so that we are comfortable I think we all have it. Some of us, we've got more scribe than, than other people. 
that even the person that has done a great job of muting their scribe, and it seems like the, the scribe is dormant in their life, they still have a scribe in them. The fact that Jesus had to come and die on the cross reveals we all have a bit of scribe within us. But I also believe that in each of us is a widow. This part often gets overlooked. Some of us may say, well, you know, I just, you know, I'm I'm like the widow in that I I just don't know the Bible. I'm not as well educated. I don't know all these things. And, And what we do is we just chase after the scribe. But I think in us is a part that actually wants God, that wants to do the right thing. Maybe no one's helped show us the way, or maybe we're trying to do it in our own strength. See, that's the thing about this battle. If you try to engage in this inner battle, where you try to beat up your scribe so the widow can come out, guess what? Because you've done it in your own strength, you walk out and go, look what I have done. See how great I am? And it turns out it was the scribe winning all along. The only way internal change like this happens is by submitting yourself completely to God, allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and do the work that he needs to so that he can help put the scribe into his place and allow your inner widow to come out and be willing to give everything. See, many of us, we think that we don't have much to give. But you do. You have everything to give. You have your life. Because that's what Jesus gave. Jesus gave his life for us. And in his case, he didn't just give us his time and give us his wisdom and give us his present. He actually truly gave his very life. Because of the scribe within us, all of us are sinners. We are selfish. And yet Jesus went to the cross to die the death we should have died, to pay the penalty we should have paid for our inner scribe. But he did it to release us of that so that we could come to a place and live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved and to give everything to him. So who's going to win your internal battle? I want to move into our time of communion to give you time to wrestle with that question. As you take those communion elements, realizing that is Jesus's blood, that's his body, which was broken for you. He gave it all for you. And so just asking him, would you, Jesus, mute my scribe? Would you help my inner widow to come out that I would give everything to you? If there has been an area of your life that you've been holding on to, that you've not been releasing, would you release it to him in prayer right now? You might need to leave here today and, and go and do something. There might be someone you need to contact. There may be something you need to go give. But what do you need to give up? What are you holding on to? Use this time for that. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I am so glad you're here. We honestly started Riverwood Church for you. Our goal is to help people who feel spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. And so we're not going to look down upon you. Just the opposite. We're here for you. But I'm going to just ask that you not go to these communion elements. Not because I'm trying to deny you of something. It's because I think God actually has something better for you. Because if you come to these elements, you might fool yourself into thinking, yeah, I guess I'm good. These elements say, no, none of us are good. These elements remind us, I have an inner scribe who just wants to get 
God is calling me to give. And so the first thing you need to do is to give your life to him. So at any time during the song, rather than go to these elements, I'm going to encourage you to stay in your seat and pray. We're going to turn out the lights so that you have some time and privacy to just give everything to him. And in your prayer, ask him if it's true. Is it true that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life? If it's true, would you let God bring out your inner widow and you right now give everything to him? But if you are a first-time guest, but you know this gospel, you have given your life to Jesus, then I invite you, come. You do not have to be an official member here. This isn't about Riverwood. This is about Jesus. So would you come humbly? Would you come joyfully? Would you come willingly? Would you come with the sense that, God, I'm going to surrender this to you?